Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. Laura Vanderkam is with us today. She is a best-selling author. She's written a bunch of books on managing time, what the most successful people do before breakfast, all the money in the world, 168 hours, and more. She is the author most recently of Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done. It sounds like a lofty and enviable promise, and uh, the book delivers. It's a beautifully written book, and I'm very happy to have Laura on the show. Welcome to the Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, this is a beautifully written book, and you start by talking about a day that you spent in Maine off the clock. What do you mean by that term, off the clock? Well, if any of your listeners have had the sort of hourly jobs where you punch in and punch out, then off the clock has a a very specific meaning, which is, you know, you punch out and then you are no longer um, uh, on the employer's clock. But uh, for me, it really broadly means a sense of time freedom, that you are in control of your time and you don't have to do things that you don't wish to be doing. Can you, is it possible to feel off the clock while you're working, like while you're trying to meet deadlines? I I definitely think it is. Um, I mean, there's plenty in work that can be fun. Uh, If you have the right sort of job, uh, you're often solving interesting problems and talking with clever people. And both of those are very exciting things to be doing that you can become totally absorbed in. I know I often feel off the clock when I'm in the middle of a writing project and I can tell that I'm making solid progress, right? Like I've got a rough draft, but I'm doing edits and it's clearly getting better. So I feel that sense of momentum. I can lose all track of time. And and that really helps me feel off the clock, even though technically I'm doing my job. Is it similar to that, that concept of flow, of being in a flow state? I certainly think there's some overlap. um, Because when we have that off the clock feeling, it's that there's nothing we have to be doing, we're doing what we wish to be doing. Um, and, And certainly being in a state of flow can can mean the same thing. You opened the book with this day that you had in Maine where you were off the clock. And and I've had similar experiences where it actually makes me feel a little nervous to have like time and nothing to do. And so I'm curious to, to have you both you know, briefly describe the day and what the emotional reaction you had to it was. Yeah, so this day that starts my book, I was in Maine. Um, it was a last-minute trip that my husband and I took together uh, because we were supposed to go to a work thing for him. Then we found out he didn't have to go, and so we'd already arranged childcare for our four small children. So we're like, well, we're, we're not wasting that. Um, so we, we booked a last-minute trip to Maine. He was, he was going to meet me there. Um, so I woke up that morning, and I was by myself. And I took off for a run. And it was this beautiful run through Bar Harbor, Maine, you know, just as the town was waking up. And I was enjoying myself so much. And then all of a sudden that familiar thought pops into my head of like, okay, what do I have to do next? Because in life, there's always something you got to do next. And But there wasn't anything I had to do next. And so that phrase popped into my head that I was 
off the clock. And, you know, I guess for me, it didn't feel too disconcerting just because, I mean, my kids are young enough that, um, you know, there's always something to be done with them or, you know, they're around and feel the sort of obligations involved with them. Lots of fun, of course, but, but definitely they have to be accounted for at all times. Um, so, so for me, it was just like this, wow, this is so cool. What am I going to do? Like, and so I ran further and then I went and I think I read a book by the, the pool, which was, which was awesome. I read a book with nobody interrupting me. It was great. So I, I feel like the, um, the temptation of that, like the longing for time like that is so powerful. And yet what I, I notice myself doing, and I see people doing this all the time when we have a moment of boredom, like you walk into an elevator and you could be off the clock for 20 seconds. And yet we pull out our phones and we start checking our email and, you know, we don't give ourselves that. And so there's all these micro opportunities to be off the clock that very few of us actually take advantage of. I mean, I think a lot of us kind of fill those empty spaces very, very quickly. What's going on there? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Um, we're not willing to be bored for 20 seconds. And so, you know, people feel bereft if they like walk into the restroom without their phone. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I did a time diary study for this book where I had 900 busy people track their time for a day and ask them questions about how they felt about their time. So I could compare the schedules of people who felt starved for time with those who felt more relaxed about time and felt like time was abundant. So people who had more of this off the clock sense. And I found that um, one striking finding was that the people who felt most relaxed about time checked their phones about half as frequently as the people who felt most starved for time. And again, these are all pretty much equivalently busy people. Uh, It's just that we have open time and we choose to chop it up. But we don't have to do that. I mean, if you if the next time you find yourself feeling bored and you know getting that itchy finger, like let me just log in real quick, see what's in my inbox, um, you you could just stare out the window at the clouds. Uh, I mean, it's hard to feel like we have no time if we're staring out the window at the clouds. So I think that moment that you just described is such a key moment, right? It's the it's the moment when I have the impulse to check my phone. And I actually think that's an emotional moment, meaning it's a moment that says, I, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, it's, it's, it's probably if most of us slowed down, we would notice anxiety in that moment, that there's some anxiety that we're feeling and the comfort of checking our phone helps to stave off the anxiety. And I, I actually think, you know, boredom, uh, along with boredom often comes anxiety. I'm curious if you notice anything about that, if you've watched that in yourself or in other people, if the research you did you know, looks into that at all. Well, I think there's a lot going on. I mean, email is is so cleverly designed to be, there's always something, you know, every couple hours, there's something interesting in there. I mean, many times there's nothing interesting in there, but, uh, you know, there's enough that is, interesting or fun or good that's coming in there that you do want to still keep checking it. Um, you know, I, I like run your own business. Maybe you made a sale. Like we want to see that. <laughs> right. It, 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 so, you know, there's, there's the hope for that. The hope springs eternal um, or liking to feel like we are uh, important that people need us. Um, you know, and, and boredom is in its own sense, unpleasant. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, but, but for many people, it, it has that sense of, of being like, oh, I don't know, I'm bored. What, do I, what should I do with myself? 
Um, but there's all kinds of things we can do with ourselves. I mean, one thing, a lot of people feel like they don't have enough time to read. Um, so if you can maybe turn some of that itchy finger, like got to check my email moment into reading time, um, that might help you feel a lot more relaxed. You talked about in the book, your shift from reading gossip magazines to literature, talking about reading. So, um, how did you make that shift? Well, I had been telling myself that I didn't have a whole lot of time to read, um, which, you know, I, I track my time continuously. I began tracking my time continuously in April 2015. And at the time, I had four children under the age of eight. Um, so in addition to having, you know, book launches coming up and things like that, you know, so I, I thought, well, I could be forgiven for thinking I have no time to read. <laughs> Um, but I tracked my time and saw that that was not the case at all. That first year I tracked my time, I read for about, I think the number is 327 hours, which is almost an hour a day. So that's, that's quite good, right? But I couldn't think of many good books I had read in that time. And, and the issue is that I was using that time for like reading headlines online and for reading gossip magazines and other such things or, you know, the health and wellness stuff, which sometimes is cool, but a lot of times is just the same article about how air popped popcorn is a low cal good low calorie snack, you know, and I've read that article 50 times and I don't need to read it again. Uh, but it was just what was easiest and, and what was right there in front of me and what I could seize quickly when a spot of time did open up to read. And so I said, well, how can I make real literature as accessible? And how can I train myself to, you, you know, pick that up when I do have the time? So it was a couple of things. First, it was making sure that I always had good books around, um, that I was always, you know, close to something I did want to be reading. Um, so, you know, either getting to the library or buying a lot of books or, you know, reading reviews. So I'd say, oh, that sounds really good. Let me get that book. Um, I also put the Kindle app on my phone, which if, if people have not done that, I would highly recommend doing because it's um, a very easy way to turn headline scrolling or social media checking time into reading time. You put eBooks on your phone and it's just as easy to open the eBook as it is to, you know, open Instagram. Uh, and so I did those things and then I started, you know, making a list of books read and I'm the kind of person who, once I start making a list like that, I really like seeing that list get bigger. <laughs> so, um, all those things, I, I started reading much better stuff. I read a lot of books on my book bucket list over the past few years. Laura, I'm curious why time for you? I mean, you've written so many books on, on sort of time and productivity and you're, you're a real expert in the arena and, you know, you're, you're uh, among the few people who are willing to track their time for years. And, and, uh, and it's obviously, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously important to everybody like eating and sleeping. And I mean, it's just a fundamental to our lives. But I'm curious, what about time has grabbed you in this way to sort of focus so much of your life on exploring it? I think what fundamentally grabs me about time is that we all have the same amount of it. You know, we all have 24 hours in a day. We all have 168 hours in a week or 8,760 hours in a year. And so when you find people who are doing amazing things professionally and personally, I mean, maybe they have other stuff going for them. They might have more money. They might have, you know, more intelligence. They, you know, who knows, like all sorts of that stuff might be true, but they do not have any more time than the rest of us. And so I think it's fascinating to study how they allocate their hours and see what the rest of us can learn from that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that. It's also a subject where I think a lot of the conventional wisdom is wrong. Uh, we, we have certain stories we tell ourselves about our time, but 
what is going on is that time keeps passing, whether you think about how you're spending it or not. And so it is very easy to spend time mindlessly and simply develop stories about our time based on isolated moments or based on cultural narratives that are out there. Um, you know, so in, in fact, people are not increasingly overworked. Um, the average work week is, is a little bit shorter than it was a couple generations ago. People are not increasingly sleep deprived. The amount the average American sleeps has gone up in the past 15 years. Um, you know, parents spend more time with their children now than they did in the 1950s and 60s, even though we sort of glorify this Ozzy and Harriet era. Um, we're, we're actually more interacting with our kids now than we were then. So lots of stuff. Yeah. So why do we have such a story of time scarcity? Well, I, you know, because it's out there. I mean, that's the story we all tell, right? We, we say we're busy and we come to believe it. Uh, that's how people answer questions. You know, how was your weekend? Busy. Like, why, why are you even giving that as an answer? I mean, what a silly answer for, for how your weekend is. Uh, that You can't even do anything with that. Like, you know, if you say, oh, we tried this great new restaurant or, you know, we went to this party that was really fun or I went at a bike ride at this park that you should check out. Those are all conversations that are worth having. I mean, busy, like just, you know, right. is, 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 is not... No, it, it reinforces. I plugged the landline in, and, and it reinforces how busy you are. I like that. You know, it's interesting though because when I think about our parents' generation, and I think about where they spent their time and how they spent their time, there was much more of a sense of off the clock. I think the technologies that we have these days make it very difficult to ever be off the clock because on the clock can always reach into your life with a beep or just the same way your phone just rang. Like it, it, it interrupts us in moments that, that put us back on the clock. And it's hard to imagine being off the clock without in some way really intentionally disconnecting. So while I agree that technology has made it possible for these sort of interruptions to occur at any point, it's also liberated us in many ways. Um, I mean, I'm recording this in my home office. Like I have a home office where I can talk to the world. I can get my messages. Um, you know, in the past, people would stay at work into the evening rather than come home and answer email. I collect old magazines um, just because I love to see how people lived life in the past. And, and magazines are a good way to um, see what people thought in the moment, not you know looking at it through any sort of historical context or narrative, but what people were thinking about at the time. And so I've read like old fortune magazines, for instance. And they talk about, you know, businessmen are talking about being at the office really late, having to work on stuff, right? Whereas I think a lot of people would come home and answer emails now, right? I mean, your, your boss can call you at home, but he could call you at home then. <laughs> he would just call your home phone number. Um, you know, you may have only had one line at the home, but, but you know, they could do that. It's, it's, people have always felt like they were working long. And in fact, I remember one funny story from it was some 1950s Fortune magazine where the, somebody had decided that, you know, it was one of these like Milton Friedman kind of things. Well, oh, people will work more if taxes are lower. And all the businessmen Fortune surveyed said, well, I can't imagine that I could possibly be working anymore. Um, so there you go. That's so <laughs> you know, we interesting. Didn't have we didn't have, uh, you know, cell phones. We didn't have smartphones then, but uh, people still felt overworked and oppressed and things like that. So interesting. All right, I want to ask you a couple of questions about some things you suggest in the book, and 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 we, we might, although I'm resisting the temptation to go through it piece by piece, uh, because I I think it's because you actually offer some really really great advice, 
And I think the stories with which you offer it and the sort of flow of the book makes it such an interesting read. But I want to sort of focus on a couple of elements. And, and one is you talk about memories a lot. Make life memorable is one of the one of the elements of the book. And and I'm curious what memories have to do with time. Memorable things stretch out time to a certain degree, but I want to talk about that. And also, if you could talk about uh, the interaction, I guess, between creating memories and the reality that most of our lives are routine, that, you know, that that most of our lives are repeated over and over again in many ways, and that is in contradiction to the both challenge and advantage of creating memories. Yeah, so I mean, memories and time uh, interplay in some very interesting ways. When we say that phrase, like, where did the time go? You know, we say, where did the time go all the time? What you actually are saying is that you do not remember where the time went. Um, and that is because the way you spent your time wasn't particularly memorable. Um, and, and so then it kind of disappears into this memory sinkhole because your brain is is choosing what it's going to you know, put in active memory and, and what it's just not going to. And, you know, most stuff you don't really need to remember, like getting dressed yesterday morning, like it, it's gone. Like you don't remember it. it who knows what, what happened in, in the course of um, getting to work maybe two days ago or something like that. It, it's, it's just not important enough to your brain to remember. Whereas if you think about something like going on a vacation somewhere exotic, and your brain has no idea what it's going to need to remember. So it's remembering all of it. And that can make the time seem quite long. Often the first day of a vacation seems very long. Um, like, oh, is that still this morning? And it's because you're, you're laying all these tracks of memories. And, and so one of the keys to feeling like you have more time and have had more time is to create more of these rich memories in your life. And I found this in my time diary study that the people who've had the most abundant perspective on time were highly likely to have done very interesting things on the day I had them track, which was a normal March Monday. Nothing crazy about it, but but there were people who are doing things like going to salsa dancing lessons, like on a Monday night. That person has an interesting life, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they, they are making memories. And because of that, they feel like they have more time. And, and it's a bit of a paradox because you'd think like, oh, well, you know, going to a salsa dancing class is filling your time. And so you'd feel like you had less of it. But but it turns out not to be the case that doing interesting and memorable things with your time um, makes you feel like you have more of it. So, you know, it's not that routines are bad. I mean, routines help us make good choices um, about a habit. So, you know, if you get up every morning and run, you're going to get up every morning and run, or you get up every morning and brush your teeth, even like, well, you're going to keep brushing your teeth and that's probably a good thing. Um, but I'm arguing for a bit more adventure injected into life. Um, so consciously busting up the routine a little bit, or at least saying, well, what memorable thing could I do today so that today won't completely disappear? Is it an argument for mindfulness to say, you know, I'm going to brush my teeth, but I'm going to be really attentive to how it feels and the strokes I take. And I'm going to put on my socks, but I'm going to take a minute to appreciate, you know, the sock itself before I put it on. Is it, is there like, you know, have, have you seen uh, an ability to raise the level of routine experience to the category of memorable? Well, I think that falls more in the category of savoring something. So if you can take something that is routine, but truly enjoy it, like I'm going to, you know, putting on my sock is going to be like a foot massage. I mean, that would be a way to sort of savor that 
experience. Um, I think it's really hard to make brushing your teeth memorable. Um, and, and I think it might not entirely be worth trying. Same thing with like your commute most days. It's just not going to be all that memorable. And that's okay. But you could decide to, you know, go talk to a colleague you've not really met before and get to know that person. And that would be something memorable you could do in a day. Or maybe you could take your family to a movie in the evening, uh, you know, an early evening movie, even though it's a Tuesday. Um, you might go try a new place for lunch with another colleague you haven't really talked to all that much. Or, you know, you might decide to take a break in the mid-afternoon and go walk to a nearby park, um, you know, that that might be something memorable. So, you know, thinking about how you can put these little adventures into your life um, can make you feel like you have more time. And what about for the people who say, like, I, I don't have time to go to a movie. I don't, I mean, you have four kids, right? So you could, you know, at least... Uh, empathize with this concept, I'm sure. But it's like, I don't have time to go to a movie or I don't even, I don't have time to take lunch with a colleague because I've got a to-do list that's eight pages long that I have to work my way through. Otherwise, I'm not going to get to sleep. Well, I would argue that your to-do list is still going to be there, whether you take 20 minutes to go do something else or, or not. Um, I mean, it's always going to be there. Like the work is never done. Um, so if you're hoping for this point where everything is done and then you can do something else. Well, you know, that point may never arise. So um, I would challenge people to say, well, I can put in the memory and still feel overwhelmed by my to-do list, or I could just feel overwhelmed by my to-do list. I mean, those are my two choices, really. Um, yeah, and it yeah, actually might thing. be that you have a problem not with time management, but people management, meaning <laughs> people management, you know, like exactly. You've, you've gotta, or, you yeah. know, at, at night, again, I mean, the, the house is still going to be a mess, whether you go to a movie or not. I mean, honestly, it's because it, people are there, it'll just get messy again. So you could either have had your experience uh, or, or not. But uh, one way or another, it will eventually, the day will be over and will be on tomorrow. So is that so an argument to never clean your house again? Uh, well, there there could be an argument for it. <laughs> no, I think, um, you know, we have to manage these things that can fill all available space. I, I believe that a lot of housework is like email in that it will expand to fill, fill whatever time you give it. There's not some moment where it is all done and will never become a problem again. Uh, you know, people get down to inbox zero and yet in the process of getting down to inbox zero, they send emails to people who then respond and then you're not at inbox zero anymore. And I think it was a conversation I had with Chris Bailey. I can't remember for sure, but he, whoever it was, uh, said something that was actually very impactful and I think is part of my challenge with managing time. He said, if you want to be a really productive person, you have to become comfortable with chaos. You have to become comfortable with disorganization because if you're not comfortable with things being unfinished, then you'll never actually spend the time uh, finishing the things that are most important to finish. That you have to be willing to allow the, you know, a lot of unfinished things or incomplete things around you in order to focus on the thing that's most important to focus on in that moment. I, I definitely sympathize with that thought. I, I, I think that, yes, people get too obsessed with answering all emails quickly. It's like, okay, let me clear the decks and then I'll get to the important stuff. But then you're tired and you don't have the same energy for the important stuff. Um, or, you know, as soon as I clean my desk, then I can focus. Well, you know, then your desk gets messy again and then you've never focused. And, uh, so, yeah, I, I think... Um, or, and we can we can actually learn to embrace a little bit of, of chaos with time, too. Um, I see this with time. I mean, different people have different comfort levels with moving parts, as you might imagine, you know, with a 
full household, lots of spirited children and activities and stuff, I probably have a higher tolerance level for activity than I've found many people do. But, you know, to me, the idea of both my husband and I having work travel within a week and then, you know, having a kid concert and another swim meet and like we're all going to some party and then there's a, you know, family visit somewhere. That doesn't sound like chaos to me. That just sounds like, you know, a reasonable amount of things that will eventually fit in the day. Um, or the week or whatever. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I think other people would be like, Oh, that's crazy, but it's not. I mean, I think you can choose not to call it chaos and, and then it doesn't feel so. Yeah. It requires a lot of executive functioning and ability to say this is important <laughs> in this moment. And, um, I, you make a promise in the book that, uh, I'm going to challenge you about because, um, I've been late my whole life. Uh, and, and I'm often late for good reasons that you describe in the book, meaning I linger, I, I actually really savor a moment and I love what I'm doing in the moment, which ironically is why I'm often late to the next moment because I don't want to stop doing what I'm enjoying doing in the moment. And I, you know, transition time feels uh, a little bit wasteful to me because it's not, you know, that's, that's, that's not memorable. It's the commute that you were talking about. And so I try to shorten that as much as possible. And it's not on purpose. I'm not late on purpose, but I, you know, the, the end result of savoring moments and not completely filling times and lingering is that I'm often late, but you make a promise that I will never be late again. So I, uh, (laughs) well, if you don't care, like if you feel like life is fine, um, and, and presumably the people who know you and love you are used to this. Well, I would say that used to it or not, I would say the people who know me and love me don't particularly love this characteristic. of (laughs) Well then you know, I, I guess it's it, it comes down to how much we we care about whether other people are unhappy with that or not. Um, I I personally don't enjoy being late. Um, I don't necessarily like it when other people are late. In our case, we started our conversation late, but it was fine because as I was mentioning before, these people came to clean my gutters unexpectedly. So it would have been very loud at the time we were supposed to talk. And so it's good we started late. But I think that if somebody really likes to linger in things, and I agree that that's incredibly enjoyable, you like to savor something good that's going on, then you need to consciously schedule fewer things into your life. Um, because the more space is available between things, the more opportunity you have to linger and stuff. And so then that's just about saying, I really need to have a very high bar for committing to something at a specific time. Um, and, and so probably most things don't clear that bar. Um, and, and that can be okay. You know, maybe it's, you see certain people at, large events that you're all going to show up to at different points. Um, and you know, maybe it's never going to work out to have a lunch at a specific time with that person, but that's okay. Maybe you see them at other things. So, you know, I, I think you can, you can work around it. I'm, I'm wondering in relation to that, whether you have advice, because this is a little bit the issue of advice as to how people can become satisficers if they tend to be maximizers, you know, people who want to sort of maximize each moment and each, each, everything that they do and that they, they um, have a very high bar kind of a perfectionist of like this is this is the ideal that I should reach versus just being satisfied who we know tend to be happier and are probably more on time than maximizers <laughs> I would guess so I'm curious if you have advice of dealing with that you know and I mean I guess part of that question too is this tolerance of chaos like how, how do you become more comfortable with that 
kind of chaos so that you can not get to not get to uh, email zero. Well, I think it helps to remember that most things really don't matter that much. Um, I mean, in the grand sense of things, Earth is not going to crash into the sun, regardless of what you or I do, right? So, you know, um, there we go. There's that. Uh, it's actually a even... very good. I mean, it, it, it's it's a big statement and it's very profound, actually. I mean, if you really <laughs> apply it to your life, to say, you uh, know, what are the three things that do matter? Yeah, and I would I would even put it this way: like most people have absolutely no memory of what they were doing on today's date two years ago. Right. Like maybe if it's your birthday, you do. But like for most stuff, two years ago, it, it's just you have no idea. Now, being human, you were probably upset about things. You were annoyed by things. Somebody did something that really ticked you off. Um, you were unhappy about somebody being late. I don't know what it was, but things happened that would, were big deals to you two, two years ago today. Two years on, you have absolutely no idea what they were. Um so the upside of that is whatever is kind of keeping you up at night right now, you could just do yourself a favor and forget about it two years early. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it, it helps to remember that, that um, most things will work out fine. You know, if it doesn't, you'll come up with something else. Um, most decisions are not terribly consequential. Uh, you think about the things people kind of agonize over, like most vacation hotels are fine. Um, rather than research absolutely all of them. Like if you know friends who visited that location, ask where they stayed. And if they thought it was good, just book that. Like stop, <laughs> stop going through the whole rigmarole. There, it, it helps, I mean, there's no perfect, right? Nothing is ever perfect. And, and I think if you can get your head around that, it helps a lot. It also helps to recognize most people are not maximizers in all spheres of life. People who will agonize over what is the exact right car for them to buy are, are usually fine with like, you know, purchasing whatever brand of paper towel is on sale. Um, so you can sort of recognize I can make more, I can make decisions that I see are inconsequential easy. So how do I just sort of expand that sense into slightly bigger stuff? Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think also helps to give yourself a deadline. Maybe you say, well, Yes, I like to research all the best restaurants in this area, but I'm going to say I get 10 minutes to do that. And whatever looks like the best thing I've found at the end of 10 minutes is what we're going with. Um, and, you know, use your save time to do something fun. And the stress level goes up in minute eight and minute nine. And by minute 10, you're totally stressed out and you make a choice. And then you immediately maybe regret it right afterwards. But that might be part of the experience, right? Of saying, I'm not gonna, you know, like maybe put your credit card down so that they charge it so you can't back out of the decision and you've just made it and you could really move on instead of sort of second guessing and stealing a look at your phone at Yelp to see if there was anything else. So, so if there was anything better, yeah, I, I guess I, I'm not really prone to doing that. <laughs> Because I was, I was, I was waiting for you to say, "Oh, the stress level rises at level ten, and then you choose." And then I was gonna say, "And then it goes away completely." Well, I think it might. You've moved on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it might. It might just go away completely if you're really able to move on. I'm curious to what extent is all of this about laborious work versus enlightenment in an instant? Meaning, like you know, giving up the neurotic need to accomplish more and just start breathing more and looking around. And it almost feels like there's a giving up of sorts, which is. Uh, you know, a surrender, if you want to use more new agey language, but a, a sense of like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop trying so hard and that that ends up creating more of an off the clock experience. Sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of 
you know, people running around like chickens with their head cut off is just wasted time and energy. Um, you know, most things will be okay. And if it's not okay, you'll figure something else out. <laughs> and if you keep that kind of low key mindset in mind, uh, then, then it's possible to just keep moving forward. Um, I mean, one of the things I've really found over time is that big things are really the result of lots of small stuff. And each individual small thing doesn't seem like that much, but small things done repeatedly truly do add up. And so you're better off saying, instead of like trying to write 10,000 words a day in a book and then, you know, not getting your 10,000 words because you won't, um, or maybe if you get it one day, you're definitely not going to be able to repeat that tomorrow. Uh, you know, say, let me write 500 words and then I'll just do it again tomorrow and do it again the day after that and the day after that. And, you know, you can write a book in six months at that pace. Um, but 500 words feels like nothing, you know, it maybe take you 45 minutes and you're saying like, wow, I only worked 45 minutes. Like that was nothing. Maybe I should be doing more. I should be filling more time. But why? I mean, if your goal is to write the book, like write your bit, go on to the next bit, write more. Go on to the next bit, you know, and, and it'll get done. It's great. It's it, There's really this sense of like, it's just, it's stop taking ourselves so seriously. It's not, it's not that big. It's not that important for most things in our lives. And we can actually take the space and time to live in a way. I mean, you talk about investing in your happiness, but there's like a way of, and you're also talking about kind of letting things go. And, and there's a way in which you know, this perspective, which says it's, you know, you're not going to remember two years from now, what email you just answered. And yes, you don't want to ignore people and you have to answer, but it probably 90% of it is just not that important. And to identify what is important and commit to that, uh, and then not fill up the rest of our lives with what's less important. But, you know, maybe one of the things that is important is having an experience of life off the clock and, you know, a way in which, you know, we're not actually filling all of our time. Laura, this has been a very helpful conversation to me, and I spend a lot of time in the productivity space. So it's, it's you know, I've, I have some really great takeaways from it. The book is Off the Clock, Feel Less Busy While Getting More Done, Laura Vanderkam is uh, who we've been speaking with, the author, and, and a person to watch uh, to see what's coming out next. Laura, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.